Hello and welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is the show on BYU Radio that is all about shining a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And today is a very special edition of Screen Cleaning. Today, we are going to be inducting a couple of our favorite films into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. Now, Cole, what do we mean when we say Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame? Well, every week on the show, we try to talk about what's good in movies, right? We, we like to look at the ones that we like and look on the sunny side of the entertainment industry as a whole. And so this is our chance to highlight some of our absolute favorites, some of the best of the best in our opinions. Uh, if, if we could agree on a couple movies, which doesn't often happen, or if we could just put a couple on our shelves... Uh, these two would definitely be two examples of movies that would go there. And as you said, Cole, we talk about movies each and every week. We talk about TV shows. We talk about music, sports, really anything in, in the entertainment business. But we really do talk a lot about movies. <laughs> and if you want to hear about some more of our favorite movies, you can always go to our podcast. Just Google Screen Cleaning Podcast, or you can look up our past shows on BYURadio.org. But Cole, how's this going to work today? We've got two films. I've got one of my favorites. You've got one of your favorites. What else do we need to know going into this? I mean, on an average episode, we have some kind of topic or shtick that gives us an excuse to talk about like 30 different movies. But today we really want to look deeper and to closely examine why these are our favorites, look at some casting decisions. And they're also movies that have come out a decent time ago and that we've rewatched recently. See how they hold up and see, you know, why they made an impact on us in the first place. Absolutely. So I understand that you would like to take the first slot with your pick, and I don't want to spoil the surprise. We are going to talk about Spider-Man 2 from 2004. It's Tobey Maguire, directed by Sam Raimi. That first Spider-Man trilogy. We've gotten so many iterations over the character in the past. And comic book movies aren't something we've exactly shied away from in the, you know, coming up on 100 or so episodes of screen cleaning. But I feel like this one hasn't gotten its due yet. And I want it to be my first induction into our screen cleaning hall of good movies. You know, this is interesting because, you know, my knee jerk reaction is when you say Spider-Man 2, I think, really? But then you look at some of the accolades and praise that this movie has gotten. I know that uh, Sisk or not Gene Siskel, but Roger, Roger Ebert, Ebert considered mm-hmm. it to be the greatest superhero movie ever made. He, yeah, so uh, I did, you know, a little bit of research before we start talking about a movie for the next half hour. And Roger Ebert's first line of his review, his four star out of four review for Spider-Man 2 was, now this is what a superhero movie should be. It's And we have to put ourselves in the time, right? The first Spider-Man came out in 2002. The MCU, as we know it today, didn't launch with Iron Man until 2008. And really, they didn't come together, and we didn't realize it was going to be an MCU until 2012 and Avengers. So at the time of Spider-Man, at the time of the first trilogy, the Sam Raimi trilogy, we were getting things like Daredevil, the first couple, like, leather-clad X-Men. There was a just awful Fantastic Four movie in the 90s. Uh, And 
that's Marvel specifically, right? DC had uh, a semi-successful, you know, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, uh, Batman franchise <laughs> on their hands. Superman was very visible, but the Marvel movies were kind of the the little brother of comic book movies at the time, which is wild to try to explain to kids nowadays because Marvel is the franchise and DC is the one that's kind of crawling at their heels. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I know why you like this movie so much, Cole. Because, because it has Spider-Man? All, well, it has Spider-Man, <laughs> but it's directed by Sam Raimi, who is kind of a horror movie veteran, right? He is the man behind the Evil Dead franchise. And, you know, you get three different cameos from his frequent collaborator, Bruce Campbell, in each one of these Spider-Man movies. And I, I can't remember who he plays in this one. I think he plays like a waiter in this one. So or no, this, that's the this third is the one. one where Peter shows up kind of late to MJ's play. And he's the uh, the tough usher guy that's telling Peter. Right, he can't right. I in. love it. <laughs> but yeah. And that's not the only fun cameo from the horror world in in what is one of my favorite scenes in this movie when when Doc Ock really becomes the villain right he he had already had a a, a failed attempt at creating this fission fake sun thing that becomes the plot device and motion for the whole movie and he's in the hospital and they he's unconscious and they don't know what's going on and so they're about to like cut into the arms and see what he has done to himself and the arms just come alive and it is it is true schlock horror the way he shoots and, and gets shadows on the wall. And one of those doctors is a cameo from one of his director friends, John Landis, also uh, with a few horror credits in his name up until that point. I didn't know that that was John Landis. Oh, uh-huh. my goodness. That is a great cameo. And 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 he's got, like, the beard, and he's just one of the doctors. And that whole scene, the way the arms come to life, and it is shot not as a superhero modern action epic, but as this contained horror because you put yourself into, you know, Dr. Otto Octavius's mind at this point, and those arms have kind of taken on a life of their own. It's a tragic supervillain, and I think that's an important part of this movie as well. It was the first time we got a great villain, and then Marvel kind of forgot what great villains were for a while uh, until we got, honestly, another couple Spider-Man movies. You know, it's interesting that you love this movie so much, but you you don't love another superhero sequel that I am a big fan of. And let me let me explain what I'm getting at. Oh, I know what you're getting at, but go ahead. First of all, I totally agree with you. I think that Alfred Molina plays a wonderful villain in this movie. He's this British American actor that has one of those looks kind of like Fred Armisen where he could really play any nationality and he's played so many over the years and he does really well here. But the reason that I'm surprised that you don't like uh, the dark Knight rises is because they both kind of have a similar theme. You have these movies where um, these superheroes that should be loved and revered by everybody are kind of getting dragged through the mud Things are not going well for them. And that's how it goes in Spider-Man 2. The movie starts out with, you know, nothing's going right. He gets fired from his job. He's still not with MJ. 
And so I'm surprised you don't like uh, The Dark Knight Rises with those similar themes going on there. It's because the theme must fit the character that it's going to. Uh, I do compare the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy and the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy often in that the middle is the pinnacle of all comic book movies. The first is just a generic superhero origin that kind of changes some things about the character and gets you to know what this version is going to be. And then the third is a massive disappointment. Uh, The reason that the story of... (laughs) Uh, you know, Bruce Wayne trying to come to grips with his Batman-ness in the third Dark Knight doesn't, for me, touch me the same way that Peter Parker trying to figure out being Spider-Man is that Bruce Wayne, it was always his decision to be Batman, right? The, there's a deep comic book history in the roots of Spider-Man 2 where Peter never asked for this. He was just bitten by a radioactive spider and had an uncle that implored a moral philosophy that, and we've heard it many, many times in this, to, to the point where the current MCU almost shies away from ever saying the words great power or great responsibility because throughout this original trilogy that is the driving force and that was the driving force of the original comic book character this particular movie Spider-Man 2 draws heavily from a little a little arc from the 1960s and and especially uh Spider-Man the Amazing Spider-Man issue number 50 Spider-Man No More which is one of J Jonas Jameson's headlines in this movie uh, big on the front page in the newspaper and we get just a beautiful shot taken right out of the pages of the book where Spider-Man is kind of walking away from leaving. I mean, it's Peter Parker walking away from leaving his Spider-Man costume in the trash with Batman. He's a rich guy that kind of had to work out his parent issues. And he's got a lot of other like really interesting parts of his personality, but his conflict with who the superhero is and who the, you know, regular I mean, he's not a regular guy who the billionaire philanthropist Bruce Wayne is was never the most interesting part about who Batman was. He's a tortured character for sure, but not because of that dynamic. With Peter Parker, he just had this thrust upon him, and he's a very ordinary kid with very ordinary problems, failing classes, can't get the girl, being fired by his job, all those things— And all of those kind of have to take a back seat when he sees the police cars and sirens going down the road and he takes time out of his day to just help people. And so in this, we see just really powerful scenes of him walking down and turning a blind eye when a guy's just getting beat up in an alley because he's trying to focus on being Peter and not letting the superhero affect his normal life. And that dynamic and that conflict throughout this entire movie is the most interesting part and mirrors the perfect conflict of your villain who is a good guy at heart, but just got caught up in his ambition and, and had these, you know, extra arms kind of impose a new personality on him and try to drive him in a direction he didn't want to go. You have two very conflicted heroes and villains at play here and it works well. Okay, I want to agree with you on something. Spider-Man 3 was awful. Um, <laughs> That's what but I also want to ask you. I, I want to ask you a question. So you mentioned earlier the newer Spider-Man films that we see in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How do you feel like now that those movies are out, how do you feel like this original trilogy 
stands up against some of these newer films. Oh, and and this is a perfect question for this, you know, with a little bit more perspective. Tobey Maguire was the first real live-action Spider-Man we got on film. Andrew Garfield was there in the middle with just a couple awful movies around him. Despite him being a good actor, he wasn't a great Peter Parker. And then we now we have Tom Holland, who really is a perfect Peter Parker. He embodies more of this put-upon kid that's trying to figure it out, I think, than Tobey Maguire did. But with all the, the Spider-Man questions, I think that the, the Spider-Man 2, the movie around Tobey Maguire in this middle one, is better than we've gotten in the MCU. But I I do... Tom Holland is is the perfect Peter Parker. He really is. So, I mean, do you love this as much as you love The Dark Knight? Another part two in another trilogy. I love it in a very different way. So when I first saw The Dark Knight, I thought it was a great movie that happened to have some comic book characters that I loved. But this is still maybe the greatest comic book movie because it doesn't shy away from how goofy and bombastic and comic booky superheroes are. I mean, he's he has this, this is the movie in the trilogy where he's uh, his powers are kind of going on the fritz and he has to take the elevator because he doesn't want to fall down like 50 flights again. And he runs across the guy <laughs> in the elevator and he says, ah, I mean, the suit rides up a little bit like he's wearing a goofy suit. Whereas in the dark night, he very iconically says, I'm not wearing hockey pads. Like in the dark night, they're saying, no, this is a real, like, this is a vigilante that's going out and doing this. Whereas in Spider-Man two, it was always just a comic book movie. I think you got a good point there. And I think uh, an example of that point would be JK Simmons as the head of the, the newspaper for which Peter Parker works. Right. Absolutely. He's, I mean, got, this he's is... got that very cartoony comic booky portrayal of this character. Such perfect casting that they had to bring him back when we got another Spider-Man two. like the most recent MCU Spider-Man uh, Far From Home has a little Easter egg at the end where J.K. Simmons comes back because he is just the J. Jonah Jameson. See, that seems like a big faux pas, though, because you've got it, it's confusing in a way, you know, but I guess no less confusing than uh, Harley Quinn coming back in another iteration of Suicide Squad, whereas <laughs> some of the other characters are being recast. So I guess all is fair there. We didn't used to remember back in 2004, we didn't care as much about casting continuities. Uh, Tobey Maguire was having like just some back problems in his life leading up to this movie. And Jake Gyllenhaal was far along on the way in preparation to taking over as Spider-Man for this Spider-Man 2. I mean, you remember Batman, those first four movies had three different Batmans. It was just commonplace to do this. And and they used to drop in little Easter eggs that didn't have to be references to future movies. It just had to be kind of cool. So uh, J. Jonah Jameson, J.K. Simmons in this movie, hears about Doc Ock for the first time and is kind of brainstorming with his newspaper peons, like what what they're going to call him, what his cool moniker, supervillain moniker is going to be. And someone brings up Doctor Strange, and J.K. Simmons says, ah, nah, it's already taken, Um, which... That didn't mean like, ooh, we're going to get a Stephen Strange movie coming up. That was just, haha, if you've read comic books, you get to have a laugh. But now the MCU has kind of conditioned us to assume everything has to mean something. And it didn't, it didn't used sure. to be that way. We used to, you know, just take an actor out, put an actor in. They're just movies. They're fun. 
you know, I, I do agree with you there. There is, there is, uh, I do pine sometimes for the days when, gosh, you know, before we ask the question, is there a post credit scene for this movie? I, I pine Which for the day when we could just one. get, yeah, like a one and done movie, or in this case, a three and done movie where, you know, it's not jam packed with references to other movies that are going to be coming back. I love kind of these self-contained stories. So I'm kind of with you there on that one. And and this is why I think this movie deserves a special recognition because we're never going to stop talking about the MCU on screen cleaning. Every time there's a new one, we will do a review. We'll see it early. We'll talk about where it fits into the continuity. And I really love that. I think that the MCU holds a special place in cinematic history. Like, I mean, we've been making movies in this country for over 100 years and there's been nothing like the MCU. And I really love every single one of those movies, but they come with those tie-ins. And so to have other movies that stand apart from that in such stark contrast, I think is important to have too. It's it's all part of a balanced breakfast. You know, I, the MCU, I want it to still keep going. I want every MCU movie to connect to one another and I love what they do. But I like that there's other movies apart from that. That's why, I mean, DC right now is trying to separate itself and and make these little, you know, standalone, the Joker, the Suicide Squad. They're supposed to just kind of be these one-offs, the Batman. That's the concept behind them. Uh, and then the MCU does their own thing. And so Spider-Man, for, the, for all these years before he joined the MCU, was that same concept. You know, he just, he was your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, helping the kids. Sure. Do you feel like Spider-Man 2, because you kind of alluded to this, that this was going to be the argument going into this discussion. Do you do you feel like Spider-Man 2 can be taken seriously and critiqued as a, a really quality piece of cinema or, or really high quality filmmaking? I do. Or storytelling. And it's because of Sam Raimi. So... Uh, one thing that current MCU movies do is that they have a brand and they do look similar, right? I don't fault anyone that gets some of these uh, current Marvel movies confused for one another because they're built with a similar color palette. And of course you have like things like Guardians of the Galaxy that break that mold. But then once the mold's broken, you have things like Guardians 2 and Thor Ragnarok that just basically copy exactly that. And so the MCU has a certain look and feel that's very samey and that's part of their brand they're trying to build a, a connected universe but what sam raimi specifically brings to spider-man 2 is something that's cinematically unique to your comic book stylings and i think it's it's similar to that very first batman that danny elfman with the score who danny elfman by the way on the spider-man 2 score as well and, and all the visuals that we get from batman that are just a little different, right? I mean, you're you're yeah. a big Batman fan. You can defend that one. Danny Elfman is one of my favorite composers of all time, and I think the pairing of Sam Raimi and Danny Elfman is a great fit. And I think the scores for these movies are quite good as well. So yeah, no argument there, and, Cole. And, and it's not so much like there's a Spider-Man theme that some people think of, but then there's this like theme that represents the responsibility. And when I really think of Spider-Man, and it's, and it's the one we're going to play whenever we go to commercial break here in just a couple minutes, it, it's the theme that represents 
this inner conflict and that's the driving force of the movie. And to me, my brain always goes to what is the pinnacle of this middle chunk, this middle movie, and that's the train scene where he's battling Doc Ock and then they stumble upon a train and and Doc Ock, you know, pulls out the brake and just lets the train go fast and Peter is just working with the New Yorkers to try to stop it and it's a people coming together kind of thing. I am a sucker and this is something we are definitely going to talk about in your first selection to the Screen Cleaning Hall of Good Movies. Um, I'm a sucker for a people coming together story. And just in the middle, yeah. just that, that perfect little bit in this movie where the New Yorkers unite behind Spider-Man for a second, always, all without fail, will bring a tear to my eye. I think it is the best scene in this movie, and it perfectly represents who Spider-Man is supposed to be at his best, and this is why he should be Spider-Man. Cole, I, I, I think you've sold me on Spider-Man 2 because I think it's got more going for it than you might think uh, just looking at it on the surface. Another criticism that I would give to the MCU movies is that the stakes aren't that high. I mean, I know people are dying right and left, but if you just look up online, you can see, oh, that character has another franchise coming up or he's got another sequel coming up. So you're never too concerned. But this movie just starts off by dragging Spider-Man through the mud. This is back before, you know, I don't think we knew that there was going to be a Spider-Man 3 before Spider-Man 2 even came out. We may have if it was meant to be a trilogy all along. But I just meant to be as far as the storytelling is. Oh, go ahead. There, there's a story behind Sam Raimi's intended Spider-Man 4. There, there were supposed to be an original four movies, I think, is what he planned for. But we didn't know. There, there weren't these, like, casting lists published online and release dates scheduled 10 years in advance for, like, Avatar 5. Like, at the time, we hoped there would be a Spider-Man 3, but we didn't know. You're right. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of storytelling and high stakes and upping the ante... And really just giving us characters that we care about, especially with the villain, a villain that we can actually sympathize with to a degree. And uh, I think maybe I ought to give Spider-Man 2 another look. I've got a couple uh, favorite quotes that I wrote down before we end. My my favorite bits of Spider-Man 2. So I'd like to read a couple to him, see if you can pick your favorite quote from the movie. See if you remember these. All right. So Spider-Man saves a couple kids, says, hey, kids, no playing in the streets. And then they answer with a cute little, yes, Mr. Spider-Man, I thought was great. Peter's saying, (laughs) I don't have time for girls right now. And then the response comes, what are you, dead? (laughs) And then also Joel McHale, there are a ton of just people you didn't realize were in this movie, but Joel McHale plays the banker that isn't letting Aunt May take out a second mortgage on her home whenever they're in financial problems. And as <laughs> Peter is running away, when Alfred Molina comes in and starts robbing the bank, uh, Joel McHale, with just dripping with acting, says, that boy of yours is a real hero to Aunt May because Peter's running away so that he can, you know, change into Spider-Man to save the day. Sure. Yeah. You know, is this the one where they kiss upside down in the rain? So that is the first one. This is the one oh. where MJ kisses her astronaut boyfriend, J. Jonah Jameson's son, 
upside down to see if she like feels the same thing. There's a whole MJ having a little <laughs> bit char- more character than just being, you know, a pretty face in this movie as well. She's trying to find who she loves and she really does love Peter, but he keeps rebuffing her cuz he's conflicted of whether he's Peter or whether he's Spider-Man. That would be unfortunate if your significant other uh refused to kiss you unless you were upside down dripping wet in the rain. <laughs> she was just trying to see if she felt cuz she didn't she didn't know who Spider-Man was until the end of this movie where she finds out it is Peter. Um by the way, this movie actually cares about his secret identity, which no MCU movie has cared about with any of their heroes. Well, there you have it. Cole's first pick for a film that he is inducting into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. Movies that we find so noteworthy that if we could only choose a handful of them, we'd put them up on our shelves and proudly show them off to everybody we know. And I've got such a film that I want to talk about when we return. Spoiler alert, it didn't have a sequel. It didn't have a giant budget. And uh, there are no superheroes or people donning masks at all. And I can't wait to tell you about it. That's coming up next here on Screen Cleaning. soundtrack of the movie that I am so excited to talk to you about. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Today on the show, we are inducting a couple of films into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. Films that we find are so noteworthy that we just want to tell everybody we know about them and put them up on our uh, our shelves, if you will, for everyone to see. Cole, before the break, inducted spider-man 2 into the screen cleaning hall of fame and i'm gonna slow things down a bit with a movie that had a fraction of the budget and i'm gonna introduce this movie by talking about movies that it reminds me of so it's reminiscent of a few movies and i'll explain during this discussion why i think of these movies when i talk about this movie so the first movie that I think of when I watch this film is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. That's the, uh, the biopic, the Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers neighborhood movie, right? Absolutely. Uh, another movie that this reminds me of is another Tom Hanks movie, actually Castaway, directed by Robert Zemeckis. And then the third, the third movie that this movie reminds me of is a film called, Punch Drunk Love, starring Adam Sandler. Now, let's be very clear. I can't think of a single Adam Sandler movie that I would induct into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame, but I'll mention later on why this movie I'm about to talk about reminds me of elements of Punch Drunk Love. That piece of music, beautiful music that you heard going into, uh, coming in from the break, is from the 2007 film, from MGM Studios. It's called Lars and the Real Girl. This is a movie I talked about a fraction of the budget, Cole. 
It was made for $12 million, and it made less than $12 million at the box office. So I really want to do my best here today to encourage you to go and see this movie. So it, now, it was kind of ignored box office-wise, but critical reception for this was also great. It's not like we're trying to defend bad movies here. I talk about Roger Ebert's four-star review of, of Spider-Man 2, and he gave three and a half here to Lars and the Real Girl. Um, also a critical darling on a lot of best of 2007 lists by the end, and, and a movie that I agree with you is fantastic. And more accolades that I will mention here in just a little bit as well. This is a movie that if I were to just tell you the synopsis of this film, you wouldn't watch it because you would think it sounded bizarre. You would think it sounded twisted uh, or maybe too inappropriate to to watch as a family. But I'm going to argue for watching it, even though it is PG-13. It's PG-13 really for thematic issues, right? So let me just tell you the premise. And again, don't just listen to the premise. Listen to the discussion that we're about to have, because the premise is truly kind of bonkers. So there is this lonely 20-something young man, played by Ryan Gosling, who keeps to himself. He's an introvert, and he really just doesn't know how to connect with people. And so he overhears a conversation. He overhears his coworker one day talking about these dolls that you can buy online that are the same size as humans, weigh the same as humans, and they're used for, let's just say, sometimes less than noble purposes, right? And uh, he purchases one of these dolls and starts up this relationship with this doll. Uh, this is sounding horrible, just like I promised it would. But he talks to her and he creates this backstory for her. And he doesn't use this doll for those uh, less than noble purposes that I just mentioned. And uh, now let me backtrack a little bit. Because when the film opens, you see this car pulling up and you see Ryan Gosling looking out of his window and so right off the bat, you're getting a clear picture of somebody who wants to be part of the action, but he's just on the inside looking out, wishing he could communicate and be a part of other people's lives. But he has this debilitating mental illness that really prohibits him from doing that. He has these constant invitations from his sister-in-law to come over from dinner or to come over for dinner. He lives in the garage house. His sister-in-law and brother live in the house adjacent to it. And he just can't quite do it, right? Until you see he this... has kind of his crutch. Until, you know, he, he has the most hard time communicating and allowing other people to touch him and do all of these things. But as soon as he has this a real girl to him to stand next to him, he's able to communicate almost through her and, and really reach the outside world once again. Right. So when he can't connect with real people, which is certainly a problem that I know a lot of people have, they just they can't quite communicate or talk to or, or have that contact, like you mentioned, Cole, with other people. So he chooses to connect with something that can't talk, that can't disappoint him, that can't leave him or die. 
And that becomes a major theme throughout the movie. You start to see this pattern in his mental illness because what is he doing when he goes to church? First of all, he mainly goes to church, it seems, because that's what he did when he was growing up as a kid. And in fact, in church, he picks up this little toy and starts playing with it across the pew from this other little boy. Uh, he keeps his baby blanket that his mother made for him. Um, he he goes to the vending machine. And what does he get? He doesn't get like a sandwich or a candy bar. He gets Cracker Jack. And what does he drink for lunch? He drinks juice. So clearly he is this little kid in this grown man's body that is just having a difficult time adjusting to some real traumas that he's had in his life. And as he introduces this doll to other people, part of the backstory that he gives her is that her parents died when she was a kid and that her mom died in childbirth, which is exactly how Ryan Gosling's Lars mother dies. She dies in childbirth and her, his father also dies. And so clearly he has some real emotional traumas that translate into some real mental illness. And it all kind of traces back to his childhood. Now, I should say, I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I am not an expert about mental illness. I would love to learn more about mental illness so that I could uh, make sure that I talk with more understanding and more care. But mainly, I would just love to listen. And that's something that the people in this film get really good at is listening, serving, and loving. And let's talk about some of the ways that this movie is reminiscent of, of some of those other movies that I talked about, right? In A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, you have this character, Fred Rogers, who is a real person. And throughout the movie, you are just spellbound by this performance that Tom Hanks gives because he is so quiet. He speaks slowly and with purpose, and you listen to every single word that he says. And more importantly, he listens to every single word that other people say to him. He was a great listener. And I, what I love about that movie is I left that movie thinking, this is how you serve other people, right? Sometimes all it takes is a really good listener, right? Now, the reason this movie kind of makes me think of Castaway is because Ryan Gosling actually holds these full conversations with this doll. And, you know, just as if it was Tom Hanks in Castaway Wilson! speaking to Wilson. Right. Right. And in fact, Ryan Gosling improvises a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the conversations that he has with with this doll. The doll, of course, does not speak. And so he kind of speaks for her, not in her voice, but just says, oh, this is what she said. Because it's a way that... to communicate. Again, he's trying to reach out. And, you know, one of the one of the themes I think you brought up is what it means to be real, whether what it means to be a real girl or what it means to be a real man, which is a conversation that Lars has with his older brother, Paul, played by Paul Schneider. Yes, and I do want to talk about this cast here, but let me mention really quickly 
Punch Drunk Love, the kind of the connection there. That was a movie that came out in 2002. Also about this man who could not connect with real people. Very awkward. And the difference there is that he has all of this pent up frustration and anger that manifests itself in very unhealthy and sometimes violent ways. So whereas Punch Drunk Love is kind of an angry movie about love, hence the title Punch Drunk Love, um, there is not a mean bone in the body of this film, Lars and the Real Girl. So let's talk about some of those performances. While I was watching this, I, I couldn't help but think, who else could have played Lars in this film but Ryan Gosling and this is actually when I thought of Adam Sandler because I thought well Adam Sandler has played these awkward loner type roles before but not like Ryan Gosling does here he was nominated for a Golden Globe this is my favorite Ryan Gosling performance because he threw so much into this role so much that he actually went a little method he kind of lived with this doll in that garage that you see in the film and held conversations with her. So I'm sure a lot of the uh, sure a lot of the dialogue that you see in the or that you hear in the film probably came from some of those method sessions that he had with oh, the doll. And some of the stories behind the scene, they treated Bianca, right? They treated this doll like she was an actress. They gave her her own trailer and they only brought her out when it was time to do the filming, right? He, you know, Gosling got to develop this behind the scenes relationship, right, inside his own head to what it would be like, but you know, that realism that carried over behind the scene to help everyone else in the cast except that this is what was happening. Right. It's my favorite Ryan Gosling performance. I love the rest of the cast, too. Emily Mortimer plays his sister-in-law that lives in the house adjacent to his garage house. She is the poster child for someone who is compassionate and utterly sincere. And her cracking, squeaking voice is just so heartbreaking and heartwarming. And it just lends to the credibility of this character and her performance, I should say. She just begs Lars to be a part of their lives and to connect with them, which is really interesting. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that uh, in just a minute here. But I also want to mention Paul Schneider, who you probably, maybe you don't remember him, uh, from the two seasons of Parks and Rec that most people don't like, right? He's from seasons the first one and couple, two of yeah. Parks and Rec. I really liked him on that show. Um, And what's interesting about his character, I feel like he is even more awkward and has an even bigger problem connecting with people or communicating with people, I should say, than his brother Lars does. Whenever he's speaking with Lars or or whenever he's in an uncomfortable situation, he can't look that person in the eye. He can hardly string words together to form a coherent sentence he is so good in this role, and uh, he's very much very similar to the way he plays a character in uh, Parks and Rec, which you should definitely check out. He had Patricia a heck of Clarkson. a 2007 oh. when he was in The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert oh my goodness. Ford and Lars and the Real Girl in the same year. Yeah, yeah, and he was actually kind of terrifying in The Assassination <laughs> of... Uh, 
Say the, the full title. Or, yeah, yeah, keep, keep yeah, going. Keep that's going. the one. <laughs> um, Patricia Clarkson plays this family doctor slash psychologist who is, you know, she is going along with the facade. And in fact, she encourages everybody to go along with this facade for his own uh, mental well-being, right? And so she'll bring in this doll and pretend to treat it under the guise of really treating Ryan Gosling's character. You know, she'll say, oh, we need to let her rest. Do you want to come in my office and keep me some company? And so she's helping him get well while he is working some things out on his own. And uh, you'll remember her from Jumanji and The Green Mile. I she, really love. She and Emily Mortimer oh. actually play different ages of the same character, sort of character, like imaginary character huh. in Shutter Island. So they were both oh, over yeah. in that Scorsese joint. Uh, and yeah, like I said, happened to play the same person. Then they reunite over uh, in this movie. Yeah. Kelly Garner is we I guess we can call her the love interest in the film. She's the she's made some big movies. Girl. She was in The Aviator. She was in, most recently, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And what's what's interesting about her is she also played Marilyn Monroe in a TV movie called The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe. And what's interesting about that, I did not see The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe. I should be upfront about that. But in this movie, she is also very awkward. And when she speaks, it's kind of this breathy, airy, fragile, heartbreaking voice that you can't help but fall in love with, right? So I can certainly see the connection as far as uh, her voice is concerned, why she would be, uh, why she would play Marilyn Monroe in that other movie. But uh, she's just one of many characters in this film that just breaks your heart and you just, you ache for her because she is also somebody that wants to make a real connection. Unlike Lars, she is putting herself out there with actual people and uh, will they, won't they is kind of a question that, that it goes throughout the film. But what's really at the heart of this movie in my mind is going back to that advice that Patricia Clarkson gives to the brother and sister-in-law and ultimately everybody in this small Wisconsin town to go along with it. You start seeing people that agree to go along with it reluctantly at first to be sure but they really embrace this doll and they pretend to to talk to her and take her places and spend time with her and the reason for that isn't because uh you know they think it's funny or you know they 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 do it because they love ryan gosling so much they love Lars so much that they want him to become well they want him to connect with them right and what's interesting is a lot of times when we have difficulty communicating with people or uh, connecting with people it's because sometimes it can be our fault because we're trying to communicate or connect with them in ways that are only meaningful to us or only that only we know how to do right so for instance Cole um you know, if uh, if you were a diabetic and, you know, you had a bad day and I wanted to make you feel better, I would bring you over uh, all of this sugary candy. Right. That isn't helping you in the way that you need help. 
right? Right. And in fact, in one part of this movie, Lars says to his doctor, he's talking about Emily Mortimer's character, his sister-in-law. He's saying she's always trying to hug everyone. And, you know, he he talk, goes and talks about how, you know, it hurts him to hug people and he, he doesn't feel comfortable touching other people. And so he's grown up this whole time with people trying to reach out to him and connect with him in ways that aren't meaningful to him or that aren't going to get the job done right. Right. And so when we start to see change in Lars is when people start connecting with him on his terms. And that I think is so important to any service that we give anybody. We need to serve people in ways and love people in ways that are meaningful to them. Uh, I also want to mention the director. You might be familiar with this director, Cole. He hasn't directed very much. And in fact, this was his first big movie. He had another movie come out that same year that we don't need to talk about. But his name is Craig Gillespie. And he also directed I, Tanya." You bet he did. And he's also going to be directing the upcoming Disney spinoff movie, Cruella, starring Emma Stone, a frequent collaborator of Ryan Gosling, incidentally. The writer of this film is a woman named Nancy Oliver. Can you believe it? This is her sole feature writing credit for which she was actually nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. So it's such a shame that she hasn't written more written more films. She wrote a lot for Six Feet Under and True Blood, so she's got a lot of HBO credits under her belt. That beautiful music that you heard going in from the break is by uh, somebody named David Torn. Now, he's somebody that has had some big films that he's composed under his belt. The Big Lebowski, Traffic, Adaptation, The Departed, and in that same year in 2007, No Country for Old Men, which would go on to win Best Picture. What I love about the score is that it's a little spacey, it's a little sad and heartbreaking, and the the spaciness of it really lends itself well to uh, this character that is suffering from mental illness. And at times, it's also very heartwarming with just little glimpses of hope and you kind of got a a sample of that going in from the break that was in one of my favorite that comes from a scene one of my favorite scenes from the film and it's called bowling with margo at a at a certain point in the movie he is actually able to break away from this doll for a moment and go bowling with margo uh this this quote love interest in the movie And you can start to see the walls are starting to crumble a little bit. And he's looking at her in a way that suggests he's he's getting the healing that he needs with the help of all of these people. And then I said glimpses of hope, because by the end of that uh, track, it kind of fades out a little bit. And the scene ends with him saying, oh, I could never cheat on Bianca. So the score is so perfect for the movie. Cole, this is a movie that, again, I will sing its praises to my dying day. I hope people watch it. I hope people see it. And I hope people can overlook the premise of the movie because that's not what the movie is about. The movie is about learning to love people 
and uh, learning to accept people. It's about tolerance. And really, um, if you, <laughs> even if you disregard everything I just said, just know that you might be uncomfortable the first time you watch this movie, not knowing where they're going to go with this premise. But if you just listen to me, you'll know that it will never go in the territory that you fear it will or that you think movies with this type of a premise might. It is just a sweet, heartbreaking, but also very heartwarming film. And uh, it's one of the many examples or one of the one of the few examples of movies that I would feel comfortable recommending to people about this is how you serve people. This is how you love people in the way that they need to be served and in the way that they need to be loved. I wrote down a couple favorite quotes of mine from this movie. You mind if I share? Absolutely. So as uh, Dr. Patricia Clarkson is explaining how they're going to have to go along with this, she um, she gets some feedback from Paul Schneider who says, everyone's just going to laugh at him. And then she says, and you. Which yes! was just so important because that's what Paul Schneider was most afraid of. He he communicates pretty well with like everyone else. It's just his brother that he doesn't get because he is concerned about what people think, and he was very concerned about what people would think of his brother. But like he had to admit that it was a little bit about himself too. He didn't want to be roped up in this kind of a charade. Uh, I love that too. Yeah. At, at early on, so there's there's a couple times where he's got flowers. Um, early on, he's given flowers, and and they say those are nice, huh? And they're not real, so they'll last forever. And this is before we're even introduced to Bianca, who eventually mm. it, it, that that whole the whole process of it doesn't even last forever. But I think that sets up what we're getting to early on. And then as you mentioned, when, when Emily Mortimer, you know, hugs everyone and as Lars is trying to explain this, he describes the feeling of being touched as when you go outside and your feet freeze and then you come back inside and they thaw. And I, I thought that was just such a perfect, like you can imagine that. And you know, he, this whole story takes place over a winter in Wisconsin. It's very cold. It's very dreary visually. And, and they seem to get that, and then they bring in, I think, that very potent for anyone that's been in a cold climate ever uh, in their life kind of description of how he feels when people are get too close to him, sort of. Cole, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I have just one more note from when I was re-watching this, and it's a fascinating thing when you get to re-watch something. You can focus on some of the little details as opposed to trying to take in the whole story for the first time. There's two times in this movie where someone is reading something. One of them, uh, he's reading to uh, Bianca one night. And he's reading from Don Quixote, which is like perfect because that's a really genuine guy that's trying to be nice but is absolutely delusional about the world around him. And then the other time is in church right after he and his brother have the conversation about what it means to be a real man. You like need to grow up and think about other people other than yourself. The sermon is from first Corinthians 13, which is when I was a child, I spoke and walked as a child, but now that I'm a man, I put away childish things like they, this is such a tight script. Everything means something and is driving back to the goal of the movie. Well, there you have it. Two films that are the first two inductees into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. 
Spider-Man 2 from 2004, and Lars and the Real Girl from 2007. Two movies to check out for sure. And when we return, just as we do with each and every one of our shows, we're going to do a little panning for good, and this time we're going to tie them into these two inductees that we've just spent the entire show talking about. That's all up next here on Screen Cleaning. Welcome back into Screen Cleaning. It has been just such a fantastic show, talking about two movies that we love and have now been inducted into the official Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. (laughs) I got a new favorite sound effect for the show. Uh, You know, hopefully it won't just be a two-movie haul for very much longer. We're planning to do a few more of these as time goes by. And hey, if you're listening to us in the distant future, you can listen to all yet-to-come Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame episodes by going to our podcast feed on BYUradio.org or, you know, wherever your podcasts are at. Also, if you're digging up old podcasts, we had an episode where we talked about superior sequels, where we made the fascinating discovery that every movie sequel is improved when you add Dwayne at the Rock Johnson. And so the last question, just for fun, Jeffrey, uh, and one that I'll try to remember the next time we do one of these Hall of Fame episodes as well, would a sequel to either of these movies be improved by adding Dwayne, the Rock, Johnson? Ooh, um, that would be a hard no for <laughs> Lars and the Real Girl. You don't want a Lars and the that. Real Girl too. Life gets realer or something like that. Starting no, the Rock no. as the Real Girl. Back in the box, or yeah, maybe something <laughs> like that. Um, no, Spider Man, absolutely. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I am on board because the Spider-Man 3 we got was so bad, nothing could have been worse. I mean, you you add The Rock, and it could have only been better. And this was The Rock back in, like, 05, 06, 07 when Spider-Man 3 came out that was still taking things a little more seriously before he started to get jokesy. I think a Spider-Man 3 with The Rock as the Sandman, or The Rock is just pick a Spider-Man rogue, would have been sure. way better than the kind of mess that we got. Well, we'll never know, Cole. I guess But not. he will be in the MC, he will, or is he, he's going to be in the DC He's going to be in the right? DC, yeah, with Black Adam, the sequel to Shazam. Well, maybe we'll start seeing some much better DC movies then. Just add the rock. One can hope. Well, a- as we do each and every episode of Screen Cleaning, we do a little panning for good to end things. There's good in them dire hills. Jeff, when you talked about Lars and the Real Girl, you mentioned some of Ryan Gosling's ad-libbing and the way he really dove into his character. And one of the cutest examples of this that I found when looking at behind-the-scenes stories from that movie was the scene after uh, uh, Margot is having this little friendly... I guess not so friendly on her part, co-worker rivalry with the guy that shares Lars's desk. And again, everything drives back to one thing in this movie. She's got a teddy bear that she loves and he's got action figures that he loves, which 
also aren't real, but no one seems to care when people love those things instead of a sex doll. But anyway, <laughs> so so the guy puts a little noose around her cute little teddy bear's neck, and it, it makes her visibly upset and understandably. And so Lars goes to kind of console her, and he's along in his journey now to where he can kind of communicate a little bit better, but he's still, you know, assisted by this inanimate prop. And as she's kind of explaining why it means so much, uh, Ryan Gosling just ad-libbed starting to perform CPR on this little bear and and kind of bring him back to life after he had the noose around his neck and and you could see the reaction from from Kelly Garner's like she could she didn't expect it coming and it's just a, a cute genuine laugh and uh I think it's one of the perfect moments from this beautiful movie that really tell a story well said Cole well said Well, that's going to do it for this special episode of Screen Cleaning, where we inducted Spider-Man 2 and Lars and the Real Girl into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. We look forward to the next two films that will make it into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. Until then, you can look up all of our past shows on the podcast, Screen Cleaning. Just Google Screen Cleaning Podcast, or you can look them all up on BYURadio.org. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wessinger. And we'll see you next time.